Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Russell Howard is one of the UK's most successful comedians, the writer and the star of the Russell Howard Hour on Sky, and Russell Howard's Good News on the BBC Network. After releasing his first Netflix special, Recalibrate, in 2017, Howard prepared to embark on a world tour in March of 2020, with a documentary crew filming his preparations and his family life. Instead, his new wife went back to work as a doctor on the COVID front lines, while Howard quarantined with his family, and from his childhood bedroom, began broadcasting a pandemic talk show for Sky called Russell Howard's Home Time. When gigs began opening up again, Howard jumped at the chance to perform for live audiences no matter where or how. You can see the results of his pandemic work in a new documentary, Until the Wheels Come Off, which accompanies his 2021 Netflix stand-up special, Lubricant. Howard spoke with me about his approach to comedy and to life, and how it may have changed 20 years after he first got on stage as a teenager. If you like this conversation please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at P-I-F-F-A-N-Y dot so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Well, Russ, I, I know things must be serious in the UK again because they've started canceling football games. Yes, yeah, well, this, is, this is when you know it's, it's ripping through when... Uh, yeah, I think there's three games going on this week, um, this weekend. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's really ripping through the UK, Omicron. It's uh, yeah, pretty full on. It, has, it, has it had a ripple effect on the, the comedy scene yet? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's sort of a weird thing, isn't it? It's because I think the, the comedy club, the comedy circuit in the UK was hit really hard. And, but that had been fading away in the last couple of years anyway. So we used to have like, you know, comedy clubs that would have a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and they'd gone to a Saturday because partly because there were more comics that have been on TV and now we're on tour and, or come up through podcasts or whatever. So the concept of a comedy club was struggling against, Oh, I know her. I know him. I've seen them. Do you know what I mean? So people were going to sort of small venues and, and kind of rock venues or like theatres, but all those theatres are really struggling and and lots of comics are, and comedy clubs that are still going, like they've had, I think something like half the bookings have been cancelled. People are now doing that sort of self-imposed curfew from now until Christmas to kind of, because we didn't get to see our family last year you know, didn't get to go to any parties unless you were part of the British government. <laughs> uh, the, we're now kind of like almost locking down on our, on us, on our own so that we can see our family in 10 days. So it's a really weird period because we've just finished my TV show and we normally have a big rap party and, you know, and then I go see my cousins and, you know, you know what it's like the build up to Christmas and, you know, you have all the gigs that you, that you do as a younger comic. It feels like they're all done this year, but if there is a positive, maybe it's that Omicron is kind of mild and it's just going to rip through 
And it might be like tearing a, a, a Band-Aid off quickly rather than slowly like Delta was, you know? Right. But that's me trying to look at it from a rose-tinted point of view. And because January is always bad anyway for kind of comedy clubs and hospitality in the UK, maybe things might be okay by February, I guess. I don't know. That's that's complete guesswork, you know? <laughs> you you haven't already started uh, working the mental gears in terms of, oh, maybe I need to do another another series of home? All right, no, no. To, I have already started working mentally. Going, oh, yeah, I wonder what the next American stuff's going to be. So I'm already, I I can't wait to do comedy clubs in the UK, just drop-ins and working up new stuff to get ready for America. That's kind of where my head is. So, um, yeah. So selfishly, I want, I want that. To be honest, I don't mind doing half full rooms like in comedy clubs and all that kind of stuff to, to work, work up new material. It's just when you're doing proper shows, now that we've had a taste of of full capacity again, it will be quite depressing to kind of go back to kind of like half full, you know? In, or, in like a, in like a big theater, do you know what I mean? It's just or, or a football stadium, or a football stadium. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wasn't even half full, mate. That was two thousand in a twenty in a twenty five thousand. <laughs> so that was uh, weirdly, it was all right though. But it was it was a testament to the the audience's desire to see something. Um, that that was such a great gig for a week. But yeah, outside of a pandemic, I'm not sure. 2,000 and 25,000 is the best ratio for fun, you know? I, I did love how how the documentary Until the Wheels Fall Off uh, did did show how much you were willing to adapt yeah. to the situation. Yeah, because I, I think, I and I doubt I was alone, but I was just, I love doing comedy so much. And comedy is created with, not for, an audience and you get to this magic place with a crowd with a good crowd or a bad crowd they make the stuff better they they you know there's an electricity and and you get deeper and and you can find new angles you just can't do that on zoom you know with that kind of i did about three zoom gigs and it's that ah, laugh or there's the nods or the mm. And it's just, it's not enough to, to kind of spark. So that's why I was, you know, willing to do gigs in car parks or, you know, I did a gig in a woods. I was doing loads of shows and kind of like half full theatres just, just to keep going really because, and also because it's fun. It's so much fun to like, irrespective of how many people are in, mm-hmm. if you're working mm-hmm. up new stuff, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, actually, it's probably harder to do a half full room when you have a show that you remember doing in front of a full audience because you're you're like, well, that's not how that that bit that bit normally does better. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but because it was it was kind of brand new and I started again, it was it didn't really matter. I wasn't comparing the materials response to anything pre pandemic, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, one of the things that that I noticed, you know, I'm an American viewer slash critic, but watching Lubricant, I just saw how much joy you have in acting out the bits 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder how much of that comes, that style of performing, how much of that comes from having to play to much larger audiences well, with arenas, or how much of that comes from having younger, younger siblings and acting out for them when you were younger? That's interesting. See, my theory on it is, I only know this from, so New York, all the comedy clubs in New York that I've been to, have tiny stages, tiny, 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 tiny stages. And my image of it, this this might be wrong, is is of the guy or the girl stood there, mic up, don't move, just just eyeball, you know, and go, bang, bang, go. And, you know, and as a consequence, has clearly produced so many ridiculously good comics. The UK comedy clubs, our stages are bigger. And, and and the rooms are a bit like even, you know, for open mics, whatever. So I think we we always have a bit more room. So as a consequence, we have to learn to kind of work bigger stages early on in a way that maybe if you're coming up in New York, say, um, you don't. Do you know what I mean? Because that's one of my things I've noticed. Lots of US comics are really great at being still. And, and and I was, when I first started out, I was really frenetic and I was running around. So I was terrified. I was only 18 when I started. And it was like, you know, the, the, the older you get, you try and sort of move with purpose. So, but I kind of, we have like one of the greatest British comics is, is Billy Conley. And he's one of the king of the, the kind of act out. And it's... British, I don't know, British, a lot of British comics, we we really enjoy being in the joke, but then so does Bill Burr. Bill Burr is like, do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of that, if you like staying in the joke and then you're in this kind of like sort of quite dreamy little sketch that you've kind of created for yourself, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of fun. But like you say, it's a lot easier to do that if you've got a nice big stage when you're coming up, whereas... You know, I remember when I first started gigging in America in those comedy clubs in New York, you could feel the audiences going, all right, mate, fucking hell. Like, <laughs> and, do you know what I mean? And I was really, hey, how are you? Like, like trying mm-hmm. to play it how, how I would play an arena. And <laughs> it doesn't work. So you just, you just have to just sort of just take the edges off a bit and kind of... Um, sort of adapt to to that room but certainly when you're playing like a you know like a 15,000 seater the only way I've found to do it is is to kind of be expressive and to sort of move with purpose you know so you mentioned when you started at 18 being very frenetic and there's there's a bit in lubricant where you uh gently mock the idea of going back and talking to your 15 year old self Yes. Yeah, yeah. And what would your 15 year olds Russell think if he saw you now? Oh, he'd be horrified that um, we weren't a footballer. <laughs> Just, he'd be so upset that, yeah, yeah. All the TV yeah. and, and accolades wouldn't make that, up for yeah, that. I think, yeah, like 15 year old Russell was desperate to be a footballer. So 16 year old Russell uh, would be just delighted but 15 year old would uh yeah he'd be he'd be very upset with me i think uh uh oh god um i'm just getting texts from my wife at hospital apparently it's getting ridiculous with uh with covid 
Oh God, it never fucking ends, does it? Um, but, but, <laughs> sorry, that was, no, no, 15, 15 year old wrestler would be probably thrown off a lot by that too, right? That would be quite funny. I don't think that's ever happened, has it? Where there's been like a real breakdown when the 15 year old and the 40 year old meet each other and they're both, that would be a really good sketch. They're both desperate, desperately sad and they just kind of getting at, end up getting pissed together. What's it all about? Eh? Um, but yeah, funny. When, when, when's the last time you you saw your wife? Are you all the time? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's she's just at work right now. Okay. Um, yeah, I was like in the first lockdown, I was only away for six weeks. Um, so yeah, I guess the doc makes it look a lot longer than it was. But yeah, I was right. here for the majority and kind of spent most of the lockdown really as a. Um, a house I would make her dinner and uh, I'd write jokes and uh, I'd try and tell her the jokes when she got home and uh, that's always tricky as a comic trying to work the bits in um, but uh, yeah we kind of yeah that's what I'm doing at the minute just making tea for her again you know it's a good husband uh, what, what would what would 15 year old Russell think of Star Wars now ooh um uh well, he'd like the Mandalorian, um, and I. But I think he would also sort of go, "Hang on, it's just the A team, isn't it?" But but he <laughs> would. Uh, do you know what I mean? It is. It's the classic: get him in trouble, get him out of trouble. Um, but he would like. He would have loved the last. He'd have loved uh, uh, Rogue Rogue One. Mm. Rogue One. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Um, and then the rest, yeah, yeah. Is is this? Do you have some sort of uh, unified theory of Star Wars? Because I know it, it shows up in your work. I, I, it's, I, yeah, it's all day. It's just like it, it, it's such a touching point, isn't it? It's such a cultural touching point. If you're my age, how old are you? I just turned fifty. Yeah, right. So you, you exactly. So you're. I'm counting you as the uh, as the leader of my generation as a as a 41 year old, but it was it was such a. It, I guess it's like Harry Potter is for kids now. It, it just blew your fucking mind when you watched it as a kid, and just the idea of a lightsaber and this kind of, you know, like Han Solo and like Wookies and I remember going to watch it with the cinema with my dad and it and it was the you know when you go to the cinema with your old man and it's just the two of you and you feel so adult and just right at the end, they, you know, they defeat the bad guy and they're playing the drums with, uh, you know, the stormtroopers heads just, <laughs> just come out, just mind blown. And, uh, you know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, I think we all have that kind of, maybe I'm a Jedi, you know, it's kind of, we've all had that moment, particularly when you're hung over where you kind of, you see the TV remote just out of reach and you really focus on it to see if you can bring it to your hands. You know, I think every, <laughs> everyone from my generation would, uh, we secretly hope that one day it happens and we have the, uh, we have the force. I love the concept of the force. I love the, the, that, that message of like, you know, use the force. It, like particularly with stand up, it's that thing where sometimes you get, I remember doing a gig, first gig we did actually when we came out of the lockdown when we were in the, the hotel for two weeks in New Zealand. 
And I kind of, and I've never done this. And I kind of made bullet points and I put them on the kind of speakers uh, at the gig to uh, just in case I kind of froze. And then I kind of had this moment where I was like, use the force, Luke, fuck. Like what are you, you're just panicking here. It's okay. Like you haven't gigged for, for a while, but you're going to be all right. Just use the force. And whenever you do that and you're truly in the room as a comic, it's so much better than trying to kind of regurgitate this script in your head or, or even worse, follow a script in your head, you know? I quote the movies and, and talk about the force as spirituality all the time when I'm not yeah. talking about com- when I'm not talking about comedy. Yeah, man. How does how does a uh, how does a frenetic eighteen year old whirling about the stage end up following into into a crew with the likes of John Oliver and Daniel Kitson? Oh, uh, the, because they we. Well, to, to to use the Star Wars analogy again, they saw me as a young Padawan, I guess. And uh, I remember just doing gigs with them and kind of just clicking and and having a sort of similar sense of humour and then getting put together with John on... We have university gigs over here called the Comedy Network. So I was booked to do... to support John at these gigs... And then Daniel, who's friends with John, obviously asked me if I would support him as well. So I kind of was, yeah, obviously. So I was kind of like 20, 22, I guess. And John and Dan would be, I guess, 28 at that stage. And I was kind of supporting, you know, these two geniuses and they were kind of my mates. And it was like, it's one of the, the greatest times of my life really just because it was so counterculture. It was so, you know, we were on tour, you know, and I would do 20 minutes and I was trying to turn stuff over in the same way they were. And then I would watch them do like an hour that was in a constant state of evolution. And it was, it was just particularly with Daniel, like jaw dropping some nights where, you know, he would, I would I would see something happen during the day and and then it would appear on stage that night almost fully formed you know and as a kind of a young kind of comic you 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 sort of yeah you couldn't kind of study two greater kind of comedians from a sort of a silly political point of view or a beautiful kind of sociological point of view that, that do you know what I mean and we just became pals and kind of just clicked and had similar senses of humor really you know but but you've also but you've made it a point to not be too political well no, see i do a show about the news but what i like doing is i don't i'm not a fan of clapter i find that really just i, I like making points with jokes i think that's I, I like making a really funny show that's kind of comedy club funny on TV rather than I find like a lot of satire kind of a bit, particularly in the UK is so toothless and it just makes people applaud a point that they already know. And it's just, I, I love making a joke about the point rather than like a good case in point is there is the, the story of the cop 26, you know, we were trying to phase out coal 
but we but we it was changed to phase down hmm. and Boris Johnson said that 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 was the same thing and you're like the, the, those are entirely different words <laughs> you know what I mean and it's like if you asked somebody to put your dog out and they put your dog down I mean those are incredibly different different positions but so what I like about that that's a that's a joke about the absurdity of his position. Whereas you, it feels like there's a trend at the minute to go, you could quite easily go, Oh my God, it's disgusting. What's he playing at? Can you believe that he is changing his mind and saying that those words mean the same when they do not mean so? It's like fucking, yeah. You know, but it's, it's kind of, I remember talking to Michelle Wolf about this. It's so easy to make people clap. It's really hard to make them laugh. But you can, you know, so that's my thing. I like making, my aim is the joke. The older I get, I'm trying to find the joke or the laugh that expresses my point of view, you know? You mentioned that, you know, you you have to present different types of jokes for the TV show. Do you mm. feel like there's two different Russes? There's a Russ, there's a Russ that people see on TV and there's a Russ that people see at the Hammersmith? not not really like but the the only difference with my tv show is because it's a topical news show it has to be about the news so you know it's like sometimes you get up and you you sense the audience don't want to talk about omicron for example like (laughs) at a comedy club they, they might just want an evening of just forgetting about it or they might want to who knows but you just don't have that option. It's like, if that's the news, that's the news. And you have to kind of chip away at it. So I guess the difference is that when I'm on stage, is you, you there's, a, there's a greater range of things that you can talk about that kind of, you know, that, that, you know, if you want to talk about your uncle or you want to talk about uh, a thing you saw on Facebook a little while ago, or you want to you want to chat about uh, COVID, you can. But you can also tell a funny story about the time you saw a squirrel. Or do you know what I mean? It, it, it's sort of a, it's a broader uh, range of funny rather than these will be jokes about their news. Right, you know? Un- Uncle Fun can't show up on Sky or the BBC. Oh, Uncle Fun, yeah, totally. But but also because it's live, where well, we shoot it live it's like a lot of the time that the audience kind of British crowds are very kind of to and fro. So it's quite an interactive show. So if I kind of, if somebody laughs in a weird way, you kind of bring them into the show. So it isn't kind of like this, just like this is the monologue. It, you know, it's still kind of me and that's all I do on TV. I don't really do the, the kind of panel shows over here. And I'm not, you know, a TV presenter. Um, that, that's kind of doing a completely different show. It's always been doing stand-up. The only thing I've ever done on TV is stand-up. I've never, I did one presenting job years ago. Um, I was backstage at the Brit Awards, which is like a music event. And uh, I interviewed Amy Winehouse, which was fairly strange uh, and kind of incredible. But I sort of instantly knew it wasn't for me. I didn't know enough about music and I didn't, feel that it was where I wanted to be. And I kind of got, because I looked like the kind of twat that would be in a boy band, I got offered a lot of kind of TV presenting early doors um, and, and always kind of tried to pursue stand-up really because it was kind of 
what I loved and then was lucky enough to be able to do stand up on TV, you know. You mentioned earlier your perception of comedy in New York and then what you saw when you actually were on stage in New York. Mm -hmm. I, I get the sense over here in New York that our sense of British comedy and whether you're in London or anywhere in the UK is that the whole idea is to become a presenter and be on these panel shows. That seems to be the, in the UK. Yeah. The thing to do in the UK. Yeah. it's interesting. Is that that fair or no? What's interesting about it is, it is strange how I've seen a lot of comics in the UK cease to be comics because they become sort of TV personalities. Yeah, that, that's definitely fair. But they, they, they can still do stand-up. The, the worst that you probably don't see, because it doesn't make it out, are the TV personalities that believe they can do stand-up. And like, yuck. But you know what I mean? But they get an audience. And I mean, fuck me gently. And, but what's great, you know, they'll, they'll get like a young comic to support them in the area and that young comic will kick the shit out of the gig and then the TV personality will struggle. But yeah, I, I, I see what you mean with that. It's yeah, we, we don't have as we don't have as many pure stand up comedians as you do in America. Maybe that's because we don't have the, the rich history of the pure stand up. We have Billy Connolly, you know, he's, he's our greatest and we have Izzard. Um, but you guys, you know, obviously you've got, you know, Lenny Bruce, you've got Carlin, you've got Pryor, you've got Eddie Murphy, Chris Rick. Do you know what I mean? You've got stand-ups, stand-ups and movie stars. That's probably your parallel. Right. Whereas okay. we, we don't really make movies in the same way that you guys, do you know what I mean? It's like if you're a funny stand-up in the UK, somebody will like, right, let's get him on telly. Whereas if you're a funny stand-up in America, it's like, let's get him, let's get him on the, on the silver screen. But sadly, sadly, we also have TV personalities who will book theater tours. Yeah. And they as don't, well. what, but what blows my mind about them? They never work their gear up. It's just like, it, do you know what I mean? It's like, you, you know, it's like anyone that's, that's any good, like Chris Rock, Seinfeld, you know, Michelle Wolf, whoever, they're all working. You work the club before you do. Do you know what I mean? You make sure it works before you have the audacity to sell it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Rather than fucking, the, you know, the, the, that thing of like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll book an arena, and I, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll just learn the script. It's just like, wow. You know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah. Although I guess to be fair to them, or to even podcasters who now also are going on theater tours. But I think that's a different thing because the relationship with, I think podcasts are so punk and, and fun and they're, they're their own thing. They're their own band and the audience, the relationship that people have with a podcast is really tight. You know what I mean? In the, the, you know, there'll be people, people go to work with podcasts. You know what I mean? It's like every Monday I'm there with my, you know, and they're, they're mates and there's such a togetherness. I kind of get that. And I don't think those people present themselves in, in a different way. And I think the audiences are getting a very different thing from it, that it's a real kind of Wayne's world gig. If, if, do you know what I mean? Like, so well, that's, that's what I was, that's what I was starting to say is 
I guess if you're a podcaster or a, or a TV personality, when you're playing in a theater there, the audiences have a much different slash lower expectation because they're, they're not, they're not hanging. They're not, uh, they're not expecting refined jokes. They're more there to soak up the relationship. Like, Oh, oh the person that I'm listening to or the person that I'm seeing, I now get to see in real life. Yeah, totally. But, but it's sort of, if you've come up through stand-up, you, you know how extraordinary that is to have that feeling where they know you like, and I get it. It's that thing when I go to America, it like, and you know, comparison to Europe and, and England, the gigs are a lot smaller, but it's still mind blowing that there's like 500 people in Denver who are there to see me. It's crazy. So you have to meet their expectation. You have to blow their mind so that it isn't enough just to go, well, you saw me. Do you know what I mean? You kind of want the, you want the live version to be better than their ex, what they expect, you know. And that's what happens if you come up through stand up because you you want to crush, you want to you want to pull up trees. You don't want to just appear. Do you know what I mean? And kind of yeah. wave at them because that, that isn't what you do. You want to make them laugh, you know. So, as a proper stand up, why, as you express in the documentary? Why were you, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, why were you ready to quit? Because, well, I was just a bit, I was so exhausted by it because I've been on this, I've been on like, certainly since 2006, I've kind of like done either a TV show where I've had to write topical material or and then go into a tour. And um, I, I've done that kind of since 2006 without really having much of a break. And I just felt a bit kind of vampirized by it. And th- th- I was sort of beginning to, yeah, kind of just, it was just, ex- we did an arena tour in the UK where we did, we did like 25 arenas in a month. And it was just horrific. Like, well, no, brilliant. But in terms of like that, you know, stop, go, bang, 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 you know, like, it's, that's, that's a real, and then straight from that, I kind of, what did, um, I went straight into my TV show, and I was just frazzled, really, um, so I was kind of, I wanted a break, I wasn't going to quit, I just fancied a bit of time off, and, uh, and you got careful, it, careful what you wish for, yeah, and then, <laughs> and then, I don't know if people had a very similar situation like this, where you suddenly realise how lucky you are that you get to you know, write jokes for a living or, and perform. And yeah. And you realize that actually you've, you were slightly taken that for granted of, of how extraordinary it was. And actually it's just about saying no to every gig in the world. It's not about saying no to comedy. It's about don't do everything. You fake fuck. That's why you like, do you know what I mean? It was sort of right. the thing of going, that's why you're, you want to break. It's because, you did 25 gigs in, in 26 days. Yeah, that, that probably will break most people. So it was just about trying to, it made me realize there's, there's a more sustainable way of doing things. So the, the idea of, you know, going to a city and spending some time there or like, so if we're doing gigs in Stockholm, it's like, oh, great. We can go there on the Thursday and then the show's on the Friday and then we can hang out on the Saturday and that'll be a fun thing rather than, right, but if we do Stockholm, then we can, we can go straight over to Malmo and then we can double up and, you know what I mean? It was, it was trying to kind of smell the roses a bit more. 
that's what I realized that I, it wasn't a break from comedy I needed. It was a break from the, uh, it was almost like I was doing comedy CrossFit. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Where you're just like, oh, what I'll do, I'll run between all the exercises. And you're like, nah, just, just take your time. Take yeah. Your time. I've, I've tried CrossFit. I get it. Yeah. Right. Well, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it's fun once and then twice. And then you go, Oh, I'm dying here. Yeah. <laughs> so it was more, it was the, yeah, it was the fatigue of the machine rather than the, uh, the beauty of comedy really. So to borrow a term from your previous Netflix special, have you recalibrated? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of, the last TV show we did, it was so much calmer, much more relaxed, you know, and every week we had 500 people there. It was, it was incredible. And last series we had nobody. So I was performing. I mean, they still put the chairs out, which is a very fucking British way of reminding you how unpopular you are, but (laughs) because of COVID we weren't allowed anyone in the room. So that's been the big thing is, is realizing how lucky you are to have people come to your show you know and the energy comes back now because you can feel the audience is so delighted to be there you're so delighted to be there and it it feels this everyone's everyone who's into stand-up or music or any kind of performative art you've missed your thing so when you get to see your your guy or your girl again you don't want to you don't want to miss it you you don't want to lose that and the comic wants to absolutely smash it because they've been thinking and writing all these thoughts waiting to get to you. You know what I mean? It's kind of, that's, that's what it's made me think really. That's kind of how I feel about the, the gigs I've got now in America and Europe. I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, I've got, I've got lots of ideas and I've got three months to kind of have a think to sort of see what the show is going to be because obviously it won't be the show that I did on Netflix so it, it's it's kind of like it, it'll be so exciting to kind of start you know start kind of turning the wheel again and seeing what's what's there well russell thank thank you so much for not quitting thanks man i really enjoyed that sean that was a really lovely interview This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.